All right, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We're looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning, and you can find it on page 531 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I encourage you to have a Bible in front of you and open. Uh, You'll be helped by it. Now, if this is your first time with us, or maybe it's been a while since you've been with us, when, when I preach, which is most of the time, I've been working my way through the book of Proverbs. Uh, this way of wisdom that God has given us. And, and again and again and again, uh, I have told you that Proverbs is all about living well in the world that God has made. Proverbs is really all about how we can live life to its fullest as God intended for us to live. The God who made us is the God who sustains us, is the God who has revealed himself to us through his word. He's the God who communicates, the God who sustains, the God who provides, the God who upholds. He does all of this stuff, and he's the one who redeems through the resurrection of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we might live well, so that we might live life to its fullest. Now, when I say that, Living life to its fullest. What comes to your mind? What do you picture when you think of a happy, enjoyable, satisfying life? What does that look like to you? You on the beach somewhere, soaking up the sun, relaxing all care and hassle-free, maybe. You're there in your chair, got your drink with the umbrella in it, right? Doing whatever you want, having whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, wherever you want, not doing anything that you don't want, right? Complete leisure, complete comfort, totally stress-free, always fun, always entertaining, restful whenever it needs to be, quiet whenever it needs to be, beautiful paradise, 24-7 vacation, Am I right? Perhaps we mix it up a little bit, you know, see the sights, travel around, take in all the entertainments. But when we do, we travel, we travel leisurely at our own pace because we want to make sure that we are able to soak it up. We want it to be stress-free. We want it to be enjoyable. And we want to take in all that the world has to offer. And now at this point, it's clear that we're totally dreaming. So let me just add to that one other statement. Your loved ones, they're there with you, but... They're they're always compliant to your every desire, and they give you as much me time as I possibly could want. Right? I mean, am I right? Isn't this what our culture, our world tells us that life to the fullest looks like? Isn't this what you see in commercials and movies? And like, this is what they're trying to sell you? Right? Now, I'm curious, did that... Did that image that came to your mind of a rich and happy life, did it include work? Did it include labor? Did it include effort? Did it include diligence? I'm guessing probably not. Am I right? Because our our culture also tells us that work is hardship and toil. Work is something that you have to do in order that you can do what you want to do. Right? It's just a necessary evil. And the only way for it to even just remotely be tolerable or bearable is, is for you to find something that you love to do, and then you've got to go do that. But let's face it, even when you do that, you find yourself on hump day just longing for the weekend so that you can escape from it all. Why? Because it's not really, really possible for you to enjoy work. That's not living life to its fullest. 
You've got to escape from all that. The goal is to retire early so that you can live this this great and glorious life collecting all sorts of seashells because that's what life is really all about. We don't, we don't. I I mean, we, we basically, we work, our culture tells us we work in order to rest, not that we rest in order to work. Am I right? Well, friends, the Bible says something altogether different about work and rest. God wants us to live well. He wants us to make the most of life. But life lived to the fullest is not a life of lethargy and leisure, but a productive, fruitful life that reflects the diligent work of God and finds its rest and its joy and its happiness and its contentment in him. This morning in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, we're going to look at one of the saddest and most satirical characters in all of Proverbs. In fact, in all the Bible. He's known as the sluggard. Right? We're going to look at him and get a better idea of what he's truly like. And when we do that, honestly, we're going to see ourselves in him. We'll see that there's really a sluggard living in us all. But here's what I pray for this time. I pray that by God's grace and truth, God will awaken us from these notions of lethargy to good and fruitful labor for his glory and for our joy. That's what I want for us. That's what I'm praying for us. You see, we were made for productivity, not passivity. We were made for fruitfulness, not for idleness. We were made for vocation, not for vacation. We were made for diligence, not for dilly-dally. We were made for hard work, not for holiday. The purpose of this passage is to help us to understand that God has not made us for lethargy, but for labor. It's the central truth that we're going to see coming out of this text as we look at it. God has not made us for idleness, but for diligent, productive, God-honoring work. He's not made us for lethargy, but for labor. So let's look at the text, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, proverb presents the sluggard uh, through parody. It, it makes a joke of him. And, and because it does that, it's really easy for us to sort of read and pass on by without slowing down to consider the implications of this passage for us. And, and so to serve our time together, I, I want to slow down and I want to develop a profile of the sluggard. I want us to take a very careful look at him. When we do, again, we'll see ourselves in him. And in light of that profile, we will then look at God's wisdom for sluggards. Sluggards just like you and me. So first, the profile of the sluggard. 
A sluggard is someone who is characterized by a settled attitude of slothfulness and idleness. The one thing that this guy is committed to above all else is laziness. He's slow, he's inactive, he procrastinates, he doesn't resolve to do much of anything. The sluggard is unproductive. And since Proverbs likes to point to creation as examples for us to learn from, I'm going to do the very same thing. So when you think about the sluggard, the first thing, the animal that ought to come to mind is a slug, right? you, You picture it, right? A slug slowly slithering and sliming through life. Nobody thinks a slug is cute. Slugs are like living boogers. They're disgusting, they're slow. They're, I mean, yeah, you get the point, right? I mean, my kids, when they find a slug outside, you hear this chorus of ooh, and they go running for the salt shaker. Nobody has a slug as a pet because, again, all it is is a booger. Why do you want to look at a booger, right? And it just slimes up the aquarium. You can't see anything anyway. Of course, it doesn't move, so what's the point? Or think about a sloth, slothful, sloth, yeah? just moving in slow motion occasionally inching your way when you wait from your nap towards food or to creep your way to the bathroom. Now, how the, on earth these animals ever survived is beyond me, except for that whole booger defense mechanism. <laughs> but if ever there was evidence to the grace of God, right, of his merciful kindness and preserving grace in the lives of his creation, it is the slug and the sloth. And to that, we can add the sluggard. Now, the ant, we see her in verses 6 through 8, despite being small and insignificant, as chapter 30 points out, she is wise. She takes initiative. She's a self-starter. She doesn't need someone dictating her every step, telling her just what to do to know what ought to be done. She discerns what needs to be done, and she takes initiative. She goes out, and she does it. She's intrinsically motivated. She works hard. She plans ahead. She provides not just for herself, but for her entire colony. A lazy ant, that's that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a lazy ant. They can lift 10 times their own body weight and carry it for the equivalent of miles. That'd be like your wife coming up to you and say, honey, are you going to drive into work today? Nah, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to carry the car to the office. No biggie, right? It's like... No, I mean, there's no such thing as a lazy ant. If you've, I mean, have you ever seen an, a, a living ant not busy doing something? They're always moving. They're always doing something. And even when they're on your counter in one of those sugar comas because they're sucking up all the sweet stuff, and really what they're doing is just getting juiced up to go running back to the colony while leaving a, tra- a chemical trail behind so that all the colony can come and eventually carry off all your groceries. That's what they're doing. If you put an obstacle in her way, immediately she finds a way around it. If she doesn't just decide to go ahead and pick it up and carry it off. If you decide to destroy the anthill, they immediately start building another pyramid. Just, there you go. If you are malicious and you try to hold one of the magnifying glasses over the anthill to try to burn them up, then they just, they all rally the troops and they come and they attack your leg. I'm pretty sure that God was not concerned about whether or not the ants made it onto the ark because when you try to kill them, they magically reappear next year anyway. So Noah's like, okay, I got elephants, got horses, got dogs. Hey, hey God, where's where's the ant? He's like, don't worry about it. Be back next year, right? But the sluggard is not wise like the ant. The sluggard is a fool. 
A sluggard doesn't take initiative. He doesn't take personal responsibility for himself, let alone other people. Instead, he needs a drill sergeant. He needs a micromanager. He needs a coach like Bobby Knight getting on him to do the things that he knows ought to be done. It practically takes a chief, an officer, or a ruler screaming, nagging, or even holding a gun to his head to get him to do the very things that he knows that he needs to do, let alone things to provide for other people. He's just got to hold his hand and, and walk him through everything. Instead of getting busy when it's time to get to work, he dawdles. He carelessly does not prepare bread in summer or gather food in the harvest. He's not willing to work hard. He doesn't think ahead to tomorrow. He doesn't consider how he might be a blessing to other people around him or the implications and consequences of his actions today only for what feels good or convenient, comfortable or easy in the moment. He's not planning for the future. He dreads going to work. He's not providing for himself or others. Instead, he waits, just hoping that something's going to pop out of thin air. And it won't. He will have missed the opportunity, or should I say the opportunities that have already been given to him to commit to work hard and to plan for tomorrow. We learn more of the sluggard there in the question in verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Sluggard loves leisure. Loves just lying around. What are you doing? Chillaxing. He loves sleep. He loves his pillow. He loves his blanket. He loves his flannel sheets. He knows his sleep number, and by golly, he knows how to use it. But the bed is not the only piece of furniture that the sluggard loves. This would also go for the couch or the recliner. You could throw in the TV, the gaming console, the computer, the tablet, the phone. The question here is really, how long are you going to lounge around being idle? How long are you going to lay there? When are you going to rise from your lethargy and actually do something that is meaningful and productive? When are you going to start, stop wasting your life and time and inactivity? When are you going to stop wasting your life on things that are unproductive and unfruitful and do not matter? You're missing opportunities, real, significant opportunities. Your life is passing you by, and you're just watching it. But you've got to get started. You've got to be willing to begin new things, to make different decisions, to choose different habits. But you will never get started if you just keep lying around. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. Sleep has its place. Rest has its place. It's not during the sermon, but it has its place. God made that, gave that as a gift to us to remind us that we are not God, that he is. We don't function well without it. But even more than that, he wants us to understand that the world will continue on even if we close our eyes. It will. It's not up to you. We can entrust our lives, our good, our relationships, our cares and concerns, our jobs. We can entrust the world to him who made and sustains and provides for all things. It's really okay. It'll go on even if you're not working. 
But just like Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And similarly, the body was not made for rest, and rest was not ma- meant for idleness, but for the Lord. Whereas Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And although Jesus is speaking first and foremost to a misunderstanding of what it means to obey the law, it is true that the law was given so that we might understand that sleep and rest were made for man, but man was not made for sleep and rest. We don't live life by working so that we can rest. We rest so that we can work. We don't work so that we can save up to afford a getaway or a vacation. We go, we get away, we go on vacation in order to just refresh us so that we can get back to work. The goal of rest is to be energized for work, not to escape from it. That's a completely different mindset than what our world tells us. But there's more behind this question, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? The sluggard gives no answer. He doesn't know. That question is far too direct for him. He doesn't have any idea how to respond. He doesn't concern himself with it or make plans. He doesn't want to make up his mind. He's careless and thoughtless. Instead, what he wants to do is go through life in a non-committal indecision. His response is, I don't know. Don't rush me. I'm not ready to commit myself to any kind of activity. I think I better just go ahead and sleep on it. You see, he's hesitant when he should be decisive, active, and forthright. And what ends up happening, as Derek Kidner so eloquently put it in his commentary, the sluggard does not commit himself to refusal. It's not like he says outright, no, I'm not going to do that. But instead, he deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. And so, by inches and by minutes, his opportunities pass him by. Little by little, through inactivity, through indecision, through delay, through choosing the wrong things, we miss out on the favorable circumstances that God has providentially supplied us all because we wouldn't make a decision and get started. We wouldn't commit. Verse 10 is a quote from the sluggard. Perhaps this is an excuse that he gives to the question there in verse 9. But he says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's okay, right? Just a little bit of sleep, a little bit of slumber. But friends, all this is is a vague attempt at justifying his inactivity. It's just a little sleep, a little slumber. But the reality is his body language gives his true intentions away. He folds his hands as a gesture of his foolish refusal to work. And it's not a little sleep either. In the Hebrew there, a little is singular, but both sleep and slumber are plural. So what he's saying there is a few sleeps, a few slumbers. He's simply making excuses to delay committing himself to work. 
And as he continues to rationalize his inactivity, those excuses, they begin to pile up. We see these excuses in the sluggard throughout the book of Proverbs. And so in chapter 20, verse 4, he doesn't plow in autumn because it's too cold. But if he waits for warmer weather, it's going to be too late. But my personal favorite is found in chapter 22, verse 13, and similarly in chapter 26, verse 13, where the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Really? A lion outside? Sure, there's a lion outside in Africa, in the zoo, but on the street? Do you know what's out there on the street? A job, a life. You should go get one. Or better yet, a mission to be fulfilled in Christ. Eventually, the sluggard begins believing all of the excuses that he's made, all the reasons why he cannot do what he's been called to do. And in his pride, he begins to refuse to, adm- uh, to be admonished by other people. He's not willing to face things as they are. He's self-deceived, only fooling himself, though. Proverbs 26, verse 16 says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. He actually thinks he knows better than everyone else. That his, his excuses, his reasons that he gives, they, just, they, they don't matter compared to the wisdom of everyone else around him. He's self-deceived, believing all the lies that he has told himself, and as a result, he's unwilling to heed the counsel of others or be corrected by them. He will not acknowledge their wisdom because he thinks that his reasoning, his logic is better. He's proud. But there are other characteristics of the sluggard mentioned in Proverbs in no particular order. The sluggards are ruled by their cravings and desires. This is what they live for. Whatever craving, whatever desire faces them in that moment, that's what they do. They give themselves to that and to that only. Nothing else. And so in Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26, it says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. See the contrast there? Sluggard wants and wants and wants and wants and won't lift a finger to help himself. And so he's just craving insatiably all day long. But the righteous person, that righteous person lives and works and and labors diligently, not just for himself, but to actually give without reservation. The sluggard, because he's ruled by his desires, passages like chapter 23, verses 20 and 21 teach us that sluggards are given to excess leisure and consumption. And as a result, they give themselves over to other sins, such as drunkenness, gluttony, or sexual immorality. We get this, right? Have you ever noticed that when you're really, really busy working, you don't think about food? It's like, oh man, I got so caught up in what I was doing, I forgot to eat lunch. But when you're sitting around idle, you're like looking for the chips, or you're giving yourself over to greater lust, greater temptation, because idleness leads to idolatry. You're just consumed by your desires. When the sluggards do work, they often don't work hard, but with what Proverbs says, a slack hand, they're not really earning their keep. 
are actually taking more than they give. They're not wholehearted. And as a result, they function more like a thief or a destroyer than they do a faithful employee because they consume more than they produce. And so Proverbs chapter 18 verse 9 says that a sluggard is a brother to one who destroys. Basically, you're their equivalent. They're destructive. Rather than being diligent, they might seek shortcuts to easy gain through hasty pursuits or worthless pursuits or immoral or even violent pursuits. Perhaps they're dreamers rather than doers or as Proverbs 14 verse 23 says, talkers rather than toilers. In chapter 10 verse 26, they exasperate their employees So chapter 26, verse 10, which ironically is that flipped, uh, I just realized that, warns employers not to hire fools because they will end up wounding everyone around them. Sluggards don't finish what they start. They're flaky. They get tired. They lose interest. They move on. They don't persevere. Chapter 12, verse 27 says, whoever is slothful will not roast his game. I mean, think about that. You're going hunting, going on a hunting trip. I just bagged a deer. Man, I don't want to field dress it. Well, my buddy, he, he wanted to be done for the day. You know, it was getting dark, so he decided to field dress my deer for me, but I don't, I don't want to process the meat. Well, I was able to find a guy that was able to process the meat, but I don't want to bring the meat home and cook it. Just had to make it all in jerky. Don't want to eat it raw. I mean, you kind of get the point there. Right? Or, or uh, chapter 19, verse 24, and chapter 26, verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Did you imagine that? It's like, man, eating chips is hard work. You gotta reach way down in the bag and take a hold of a chip and lift it all the way to my mouth. Man, ah. Now it's just the little crumbs in the bottom of the bag. Aw, it's all over my shirt. Better take a nap. <laughs> or, or one of my favorite ones that we all deal with, you know, you're sitting three feet away from the TV, right? Honey, where's the remote? Can't find the remote. Been watching this infomercial for an hour because nobody will get me the remote. Better take a nap, you know? I'm like... You, you see this, it's, it's snarky, right? Proverbs is snarky about that. But before you think to yourself, you know what, that's not me. I cook my meat. I finish my meal. I even lick the plate. The point uh, being made here is that the sluggard doesn't finish what he starts, even if it's a good thing, even if it's a necessary thing. He doesn't finish what he starts. Perhaps he got really excited about it, was all keyed up. This is a good thing. I'm all in. But when it gets a little hard, when it gets a little old, when it gets a little tiring, He doesn't see it through to the end. He wants to move on. Sluggard is not steadfast. He does not persevere. Another characteristic of the sluggard from Proverbs is that he neglects areas of his life. So Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34 says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. And this ought to sound familiar. A little sleep, 
a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard failed to maintain certain areas of his life. Now, perhaps he had a very beautiful garden. Perhaps he had a a well-ordered home. Perhaps he had tons of friends, was a pillar in the community, but he neglected areas of his life, and they had come to ruin. Friends, this happens all the time in our culture. We've got people who are scaling the corporate ladder. They're making tons of money. They're growing in fame and recognition. They're working all the time. They're considered to be workaholics or, or overworked. They're attaining all the things that the world tells us that we should want, but their marriage and their family are in shambles. Or their soul is a wreck of misplaced or out of balance priorities. Rather than doing the hard work of mending what's been broken or overgrown with thorns, it's so much easier just to ignore that area of my life and devote myself to this area over here that's going really, really well. I'll work myself to death over here and let this come to rot and ruin. They can simultaneously be workaholics and sluggards. Sluggards are often restless. Proverbs 26 verse 14 says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Now this could be talking about getting at laziness and a love for sleep again, but the emphasis is really on his turning because that's the element that's missing from the second line. So the truth is that you could replace bed with television or even job. The problem is he's turning in inactivity, like a door that's constantly moving on its hinges because it's fixed to the doorframe, it actually goes nowhere, right? There's this restlessness, a busyness, all sorts of activity, but no real productivity. You see, there's a difference between being active and being busy and and, and not being productive, right? There's, There's a distinction between those, just like my moving my hand back and forth constantly like this, right? You get to the point where it's like Chet is restless. He's made his point, stop moving your hand. It's vain toil. It's emptiness. It doesn't accomplish anything worthwhile, It's futility, and it actually ends up fueling restlessness in their souls. Friends, there's a difference between being active and being productive. And all of this builds and builds and builds until the sluggard is caught in his own idleness. And so Proverbs 15 verse 19 says, The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Now, perhaps his path is a hedge of thorns because he neglected to maintain it. But nevertheless, it has now become a a snare and a thicket that hinders any true progress. It has entangled him. He is caught up in it. And he's going to have to work really, really, really hard to ever get to the place where he's like the upright with that level highway. Friends, these are just a few of the characteristics of the sluggard that are given in Proverbs. Moving back to our passage there in chapter 6, verse 11, not only are we given these characteristics, but we're also warned of the consequences that will befall the sluggard. It says, And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, friends, not all poverty and not all want is the result of slothfulness. 
Some people legitimately are unable to work. Some people, by no fault of their own, have lost their job. They're willing to work. They just do not have a means of providing for themselves at that moment. It's not speaking to them. This is speaking of the sluggard, someone who is decidedly unwilling to work. And it's saying that poverty and want will come upon them suddenly. And perhaps it's because they were caught asleep. They were defenseless and it came upon them suddenly. But perhaps it's simply because they were not prepared for hard times to come. Friends, we are not promised an easy, calamity-free life. Tragedies and disasters will happen. Storms will destroy. Accidents will occur. Diseases will spread. Catastrophes will befall us. And though this passage is not calling us to hoard up for some sort of nuclear fallout, it is calling us to prepare for the future so that we don't find ourselves with nothing but empty, insatiable cravings. And this was so important, especially in the day that this passage was written, prior to the days of welfare and insurance. Because in an agrarian society such as this one, if you didn't work to prepare for your fields or reap in the harvest, you had few options. You could starve, death, not a good option. Forget that one. You could sell off your land, Well, that'll get you by this year, but what are you going to do next year? Because you've got nothing to farm. You can indenture yourself as a bond servant to try to pay off your debts. Doesn't sound very fun. You could take out a loan, which we saw last time. Also not a good idea because the reality is you are indenturing yourself. You've come into the hand of your neighbor. Or you can mooch off your family or your community. And bring shame on everyone. We don't get that in our culture today. Just how shameful this idea of of providing for someone who is unwilling to work. But it was bad. And it does bring shame whether we like to admit it or not. Because we were made to work. But regardless, it's a snare. It's a hedge of thorns. It's a broken wall. But the biggest consequence of the sluggard is the displeasure of God. Friends, laziness is a sin against God. I mean, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He said at that point, it doesn't matter what you profess to believe. Your life is a contradiction to your profession so that you're actually worse off than someone who never professed faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This is serious stuff. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. This is church discipline that he's talking about here. It says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Friends, This is a big deal in the eyes of the Lord. This is not something to be trifled with and to say that it doesn't matter. And so before we we move on to see God's wisdom for the sluggard, I wonder, can you identify at this point the sluggard in you? Friends, let's be honest. Every one of us is guilty in this room. Let me just ask you a few questions if you still need help. Are you prone to sloth or inactivity? 
Do you prefer laziness to labor? Do you tend to hesitate, to procrastinate, to be indecisive or noncommittal? Do you fail to start things that you should and miss opportunities? Or do you have a tendency not to finish the things that you start? Are you constantly distracted and undisciplined? Are you ruled by your cravings and desires? You find yourself wasting a lot of opportunities that are given to you right in front of you. Do you make excuses as to why that's the case? Do you reject the counsel of others when they try to help you to see it? Do you fail to keep your promises and fulfill your responsibilities and and you find yourself disappointing other people around you? Do you prefer an easy, entertaining life rather than one that is spent in doing good? Do you have a tendency to devote yourself to one thing in order to avoid being disciplined in another? Perhaps you work really, really hard in some areas, but to the neglect of others. Are you really, really busy, but not very productive? Do you find yourself restless in your bed? It's one of the greatest tendencies we as Christians have towards laziness is in our spiritual lives. I mean, if you think about it, we'll watch, we'll spend hours watching television, but we can barely stand 15 minutes reading God's word. How many more pages? Oh, just one. We, we lose ourselves in meaningless conversation over the dumbest things, but we can barely complete a two-minute prayer. We'll spend our lives teaching our kids about baseball, but not the Bible. We're more concerned about them getting good grades than we are their godliness. Or maybe we're careless when it comes to the souls of other people. We're just generally apathetic or negligent when, it, when we think about those who don't know Christ and, and the call that we have to share the gospel with them. Or even here as a church, when we gather for worship or in our community groups or in our life transformation groups, we, sort of, we just come here to, to be served rather than to serve Serve? I'll leave that to the person on the schedule. I'll leave that to the leader. That's what we pay them for. We don't prepare our hearts for worship. We don't come ready to engage with God and with each other in prayer. We don't come ready and eager to point other people to Christ. We roll in late or just on time because we forget that God has meant this time for us to be a blessing, not just to be blessed. We skip out because we deceive ourselves into thinking it doesn't really matter whether I'm there or not, whether or not I invest in, in those people or not. And the reason why we we've do that is because we haven't really invested in them. Because the more you commit yourself to people, the more you want to be there. You want to be a blessing. We miss opportunities. We we make excuses. We put ourselves, our comforts, our convenience first. We seek what feels good to us rather than what is good for Christ and for his body. And friends, if we do that, if we do that, then this church, like that stone wall, it breaks down. It takes more than a few leaders 
to keep it up. It takes all of us. Friends, there is a sluggard in all of us. And the best thing that we could do is stop denying it, stop making excuses for it, quit ignoring it and dragging our feet, but instead, let's second receive God's wisdom for the sluggard. Now, you know, not, not condemning you as a slugger, but this, this will point, come much faster than the first one. Don't worry. All right? Just want to comfort you. There is hope for us sluggards. There's great hope for us. And it begins with understanding God's design for diligent work. You see, work is not the result of mankind's fall into sin. We like to think that. It's like, okay, the Garden of Eden, that place was awesome. It was like, it was just a paradise, carefree, effortless, Adam and Eve just lounging around in naked bliss, eating fruit, petting the animals, only getting up to take a a leisurely stroll with God in the coolest parts of the day. But we forget that according to Genesis 1 and 2, God made us in his image. And who is God? God is a God who works. God is a God who labors, a God who is creative. And in his image, we are to reflect the work of God who created and sustains and governs and provides for all there is. And that's just what God called Adam to do. God created Adam and God placed him in the garden to tend it and to keep it. And the goal was for, as, as Adam was faithful in his role, that the garden would expand throughout the globe to be productive, to be fruitful. That, that fruitful and multiply comment is not just about sexual reproduction, but through God honoring creative production, we see provision, we see creativity, we see industry, we see sustenance and life. You see, work was there in the garden. First thing, as soon as God created man, And there was honor and dignity in it, and there still is honor and dignity in it because through it, we image God. So even if you find yourself working fast food, there's honor and dignity in your work because you were created to image God, and this is part of the way that you do that. So lament, flipping burgers. It was only after the fall After man sinned against God in Genesis chapter 3, that work became painful and futile, full of thorns, thistles, and sweat. And even though it's difficult and it cannot truly satisfy the longings of our soul, it is still part of God's creation order of things. And and it does still provide temporary benefits and satisfactions despite all the toil and effort. Now, if you're looking to find your identity, your joy, your happiness, your satisfaction to your souls through your job, you're not going to find it. It's going to be an empty pursuit, or as Ecclesiastes says, a chasing after the wind. But God has still ordained it as a means of providing for ourselves and others, regardless of how challenging or boring or frustrating or empty it can be. But from Genesis 3 on, Though man continues in futile and painful and unsatisfying work, God is not at rest. He is not at rest. Though he may have ceased from his creation work, though I would actually argue that the expanse of the universe suggests otherwise, though he may have ceased from his creation work, 
his work of recreation began. See, God continued to sustain and to provide. God continued to speak and interact with his people. He continued to lead them, to deliver them, to guide them, to help them, to restore them. And in the fullness of time, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, whose work would redeem the souls of his people. When Jesus was questioned about breaking the Sabbath in John chapter 5, you know what Jesus responded? He said, my father is working until now. My father is working until now, and I am working. Why am I not inactive? Why am I not resting right now? Because God the Father is and has been at work, and so I the Son am at work. In his life, he he lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He labored in faithful obedience to the Lord. He ministered through his exhaustion. Friends, you don't sleep in a tiny little boat in the middle of a raging storm because you're just a little bored. He was exhausted. And despite his weariness, he still had compassion on the crowds, all the while staying up late and getting up early to commune with his father in prayer. His excruciating work on the cross freed us from the futility of our labors. The empty tomb transforms our hearts so that we no longer live for the empty and vain pursuits of finding our identity in what we do. And even now, friends, even now, he is at work interceding for us at the right hand of his Father. Friends, do you get that? Even now, Jesus is not idle. His work redeems our work. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10? It says, for we, the church, are God's workmanship. We're his creation. We're his masterpiece. God's working. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What that passage is saying there is like, God is at work in us, for us, through us, in Christ, so that we might do the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And those good works, my friends, are not just doing things like planting churches or preaching the Bible or doing community projects. It's everything we do. That verse rips apart this false notion of a sacred secular divide. That some things over here are holy and other things are just common. It destroys it because it's all the work of God in us, through us, and for us. Anything that we do, everything that we do in the hope of displaying the glory of Christ and the transforming power of the gospel is sacred. Giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus is sacred. Changing diapers and sweeping floors is sacred. Doesn't matter what you do. Why? Because you are a new creation who now lives for him. Whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink or you work, you do it all to the glory of God. Friends, this is why we strive to do things with excellence and with artistry to reflect the work of our great God who does all things well. 
As Christ transformed us by the grace of God, we no longer labor just to get for ourselves. But as Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 28 reminds us, we labor to give. Why? Because we've received the love of Christ and we want to display that love in the way that we love each other. Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3 remind us that we don't work for employers or for ourselves. We work for Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know, Paul said that to slaves. He said that to bond servants. And if that's true for them, then it is certainly true for us, no matter what it is you do. Now, friends, when I say that Christ's work redeems our work, that doesn't mean that Christ is going to make your job fun or easy or lucrative or have lots of opportunities for upward advancement. Doesn't promise any of that. Nor does he promise that you should just hop around until you find one that is. What that is getting at is that it doesn't transform the external it changes the heart. It changes who we are, what we live for. Christ's work transforms our hearts. The very reason why we work and who we work for. It changes what we do and the reason why we do it. Our desire to labor diligently comes from our love of Christ who labors diligently for us. And we want to display his work with our work no matter what it is we do. It's not the point. And friends, get this. Even, even in eternity, when all of the last remnants of sin and futility have been removed, do you know that the Bible promises that while our rest is found in the face of Jesus Christ, that we as God's people living in God's place under his rule and blessing, it also hints at the fact that even there we are still at work. Tending, keeping, serving, and overseeing. I won't be idle. The pain and the difficulty of toil is gone, but God-honoring, soul-gladdening work will still remain. Friends, this is how the gospel transforms the way we think about work. And so what do we need to do? Where do we go from here? What do we, how do we think about this? Well, go to the anto sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Listen to the voice of wisdom that's given here in this text. God, in his grace, he gave us this passage not to condemn us, not to make us feel bad about ourselves for just how lazy and lethargic we are. Don't stop there. That's not the point. Because here's the thing. God knows your hearts. He knew that already. He knows you're lazy. He knows you're a sluggard. And yet he gave you this passage to awaken your soul to the dangers of continuing in those same patterns. This is God's gift to us, to remind us, to help us to see 
and admit and acknowledge there are areas in my life where I'm living as a sluggard. I'm not living life to its fullest. And God has given me this wisdom so that I can. This is a grace. This is a gift to me. Friends, we need his word. We need his spirit. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would search our hearts and reveal any areas of unconfessed idleness in our lives so that we might turn from it and turn toward Christ. We need the wisdom of our brothers and sisters in Christ who love us enough to walk with us, not just to to point a finger at our sin and say, look at you, sluggard, but someone that says, hey, listen, brother, I see this, these areas of sloth. I see these areas of sin in your life and I love you, man, and I, I want us to live according to the truth and so I want to walk with you in this. I, I want to see you freed from this. I want to, to patiently and loving you, lovingly help you to remove it. Friends, we need that. I, I need that. It wasn't that long ago that, that Caleb and Kyle had to come to me and said, listen, bro, you are working like mad at this church, and that's a good thing, but you're neglecting your wife. And they were right. We need it. We all need it. So we have to first confess that when that passage says, oh, sluggard, it's talking to me. Next, we have to go. (laughs) So simple, right? Go. Okay, yeah, right. But what this means is we have to take personal responsibility. We have to own it and take initiative to do things differently. Right? You can't be a sluggard about not being a sluggard. It doesn't work. You will just remain a sluggard. Right? You, you've got to think differently. You've got to live differently. It leads to new actions and to new habits. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're here to help you, to pray for you, to, to think of ideas for you, but they can't do it for you. You have to do it. You can't be a sluggard about not being a sluggard. And so you've got to get up and get going. Okay, so, so what next? Well, consider the ant. This is, this is far more practical than you would kind of think to admit, right? What am I doing wrong here? What do I need to correct? And then in light of that, I begin to develop a plan for how I'm going to live differently. Friends, this is going to be really, really humbling. It's meant to be humbling for, for the passage to say to you, go consider the ant. Hey, you like lying around? Go, go lie down by an anthill and watch an ant work for a while. That's humbling. But nevertheless, we go and we learn. And, and we need to be specific about it, okay? We need to, and just rather than praying, Lord, help me to not be a sluggard, think of one area in your life where you are a sluggard. And what does it look like to put themes like inner motivation, hard work, and preparation for the future in, into those? Because that's what the ant was doing, right? What does it take, that, that area where I'm neglecting my wife, for example, what do I need to do differently? What's practical strategies for helping me to do different, you know, to live differently, to, to you know, maybe I'm praying more, we're, we're setting aside time to go on dates, maybe we're just like making sure we're debriefing, I'm sending her just little love messages and notes, whatever that might be. Get specific. 
Consider the ant. And finally, we are to be wise. And the only way that we can be wise is to know God's wisdom, to love God's wisdom, and to actively choose by his grace to live in his wisdom, even though I don't feel like it. Friends, as Christians, we have to resist our culture's claim that the only point of working is to gain a life of recreation and leisure. And it's going to be an effort at first. It's a new habit. It's going to seem uncomfortable. But if you wait until you're comfortable doing it, you're never going to do it. A wise person sees life as an opportunity for imaging our creative God through productive and meaningful work. We don't view work merely as a means to a more relaxing and, and, and just inviting end. Instead, we live in light of the fact that we were not made for lethargy, but for labor. Friends, this is a good and glorious thing. I want you to live in that hope. I want to see us as a church take hold of the beauty that is provided here. To not miss out on opportunities, but to engage, to be on our toes rather than on our heels. And that we as a church might truly image God who diligently works for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. God, we, we have to be honest with ourselves and just say, I am a sluggard, but I recognize that there are so many areas of my life where where I I don't share your heart, I don't share your will, your purposes. I'm so prone towards my own comfort and towards lethargy and leisure. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts and change our, our minds regarding your good and perfect purposes for work. Lord, I pray that we would desire more than anything to to live in the joy of reflecting you, a God who is so gracious and patient and loving and kind, a God who provides and sustains and gives life. God, help us to want that. And Lord, even though we know that we struggle, I pray that we, it it would be the theme of our hearts, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that we would go and consider and be wise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.